0: I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech and language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast, number 450, Receptive Language Milestones by 12 Months. Brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, where we're the largest online provider of ASHA approved continuing education courses for professionals who specialize in early intervention. So welcome, welcome to today's show. This is the kickoff show in our new series, our Language Milestones podcast series, and this is something that we've never done, and we're beginning our 15th season of the podcast. Can you believe that? Our 15th year. And so I'm really excited to be bringing uh, this information about developmental milestones. So we're going to take milestones that happen just before a child reaches one or by 12 months, all the way up to 48 months. So this real. Uh, really important critical window for language development. So we're going to look at all of the milestones in six month increments and we'll take these shows both with the receptive language milestones and the expressive language milestones. So thank you so much for joining me for this series. And so uh, we're going to be covering loads of information. This is 14 different shows. And so if you usually don't purchase the handout, now might be a time for you to really reconsider that because I'll be giving you super specific information and I'll show you, If you're listening, you can't see this, but if you're watching on YouTube, I have the milestones right here so that you can see that. And then we'll be looking individually at how uh, to best or, or my best strategies and tips that I found work best for parents. And so you'll get that here on the handouts. And so I think it's a great tool for therapists to use for parent education, a fantastic reference for where a child is uh functioning currently in his or her language development, so a great, great tool for therapists to use with parents or for parents to use uh, when you're working with your own child at home. You can find the link below here on YouTube with the, the podcast number. It's 450, so if you're listening uh, to the podcast and you want to be sure that you get your credit for the show, it's show number 450, and you can go to Teach Me to Talk and do that. All right, so today we're looking at this very first age range, and we're going to start with receptive language by 12 months. Months. And again, for parents and other professionals who are joining us who are not speech language pathologists, let's talk about receptive language and what that means. So receptive language means what a child understands or what he comprehends, what he hears. It can also be referred to as auditory comprehension skills. And again, We're talking about how they respond to the words that they hear. So receptive language is extremely important to overall communication. So I mentioned that we have receptive language, which is the input piece, which we're talking about today, and contrast that with expressive language, which is the output piece. And that's what a child says or what he conveys even before he uses words. And so in this next show, 451, the show immediately following this one, we'll take uh, a look at the same age range by 12 months and then look at expressive language. But today, we're not talking about talking, the expressive piece. We're talking about what a child understands with his receptive language. And again, let me just say this. That's pretty obvious to speech-language pathologists. But if you're a parent, again, or another professional, you haven't thought about this like we have. So let me just say this very important Uh, piece of information. When a child has a receptive language problem, meaning what he understands, when he is falling behind what we expect for his age, he is going to also automatically Have an expressive language problem. So why is that true? Because kids have to understand words and what they mean before they can use those words uh, meaningfully or to convey their own little message. And so it's so important that we think about receptive language just hand in hand with expressive language. And that's something that parents don't always get. So we as pediatric speech language pathologists need to go out of our way to explain that to parents and say, hey, this is a receptive language problem too. So it's not just a talking piece. It's the comprehension piece as well and we know that that's probably one of the big factors that your child isn't talking yet because he doesn't understand language uh, the way that we would expect him to for his age and so in typical language development babies and toddlers understand much much more than they can usually say and so when there's a problem with how a child understands language he's going to have a problem with the way that he uses language and another big distinction we need to make here uh, with a child with a receptive language problem not just an expressive language problem, but a receptive language problem, a child isn't just considered a late talker. There's more going on developmentally. And so that's why receptive language is so important to really focus on and to really think about in and of itself. And sometimes we have to sort of separate it from the talking piece uh, when we're working with parents initially, because they're just concerned about what? what is my child going to say? When is he finally going to talk? And so again, we have to really drive the point home for how important receptive language is. All right. So for this series of shows, this next 14 shows, what we're going to do at the beginning of every show is review the milestones that we're going to talk about. Because I know that lots of parents on YouTube are going to just be quickly scrolling through to to find a video that explains where their child is or if they're worried they're looking for their child's specific age so that they can see if their child has met the milestones or not. So let's just get that out of the way and let's go ahead and take a look now at the receptive language skills that we want to see a baby develop by the time they reach their first birthdays. And what we'll do here is just quickly run through this list and then after I'm finish the whole rest of the show we're going to talk about how to facilitate those skills in a child who does not yet have these skills and this is super important too if you're a mom watching this and if you're thinking well my child is much older than this 12 month range but he still doesn't do this that's okay that's fine and we certainly know that our little friends who have language delays That's that's the language delay. They're not meeting the skills that we would expect for them to meet, and they're going to be functioning at an age range that's lower than their chronological age. So let's take a look at this first little set of skills, and let me also mention, and we'll talk about this later, this is where lots of kids who begin speech therapy, this this is how they're functioning when we get them. And again, it doesn't matter if they're 18 months old or 22 months old or 28 months old. This is about where where there are lots of them are functioning because this is the period that comes right before or right as words develop, and so you'll recognize a lot of these skills even if you're a parent with an older child. Who, again, is not talking. This is where they need to be working. So the receptive language skills that we want to see by 12 months. Response to own name. That means when you call a child's name, he or she looks or in some way responds and and, uh, diverts their attention from what they're doing. The second skill is response with a gesture to want up, meaning that if you ask your baby, one-up that he or she knows what that means and they lift their hands or lean toward you or in some way maybe even nod their head in some way respond to you uh yes i would like for you to pick me up meaning that they understood that request or that question that you've asked them the next skill is recognizes family member names so when you say Where's mama? The child looks for his mother, even, you know, looks around the room. You can see there's a real obvious uh, a response there that he or she understands the word mama, and they're trying to find where their mom is. They, they've they linked meaning with that word. The next one stops uh, here, stops what they're doing when someone says no, so meaning they understand the word no. So what evidence do you see that a child does that? Is there a pause, at least, even if they don't completely comply with that request? and stop what they're doing do you recognize that they have heard that word and they are beginning to realize that that you don't want them to continue in what they're doing so that's a skill that we want to see developed by about 12 months the next one is waves bye-bye so a really important gesture and we're going to be talking about through the rest of the show and especially the next show in 451 about how important using gestures is to predict the emergence of words and we really don't see children begin to talk until they use a lot of gestures and we'll talk about what that means and that connection and why that is as we go but it's super super important skill the next skill that we'll be discussing is gives an object on request and that's with and without cues so gives an object on request with cues means that you would say to a child give me that give that to me and what's your cue there you're holding out your hand so you have a visual cue for what that phrase means give that to me so does a child do it with cues or even without cues when you say give me that or give that to me do they understand that you want them to take what they're holding and put it in your hand The next one is a really cute skill. It's kisses on request. So, again, we're talking about receptive language. So, does the child understand, give me a kiss, or do you want a kiss, or um, anything but the word kiss there? Do they understand that all important? first little request there, uh, performs familiar da- per- familiar activities in daily routines when asked. That's the next skill. So how do they cooperate with dressing? Say if you are putting a shirt on them and you say, put your arm in, do they try to help you and and complete those routines? Do, are they un- starting to link meaning with your request when you're putting them in the car seat and you say, let's get your leg out if their leg is stuck? Do they recognize that and are they helping you uh, complete those Really, uh, daily routines, those everyday activities they do, and they're linking meaning with those words. The next skill is understands names for familiar objects and people. So this is really similar to recognizing family member names. So this is that next step beyond that. Do they understand if you if you have a family pet and your dog's name is Barney? Do you say Where's Barney? And they look for the dog. So are they linking that, or maybe one of their uh, maybe they uh, love their bottle. And you call it bye-bye, and you could say, where's your bye-bye? And they would start looking for it, or do you want a bye-bye? And they get real excited because they understand that word, and they're hungry, and they want that bottle. And so do we see evidence that a child is understanding uh, names for familiar objects and familiar people? The next skill is participates in social games with gestures. So this would be a game like patty cake. Do they clap along? A game like how big is baby? Are they raising their hands when we say so big? Or with a game like Peekaboo? are they trying to take the blanket off their head? Are they linking meaning with these little games and their everyday routines? That's what you'll find kind of woven throughout this whole age range. And the last skill that we'll be looking at here with receptive language is begins to identify a few body parts. So do are they starting to participate when you say, where's your nose or show mommy your toes? Are they understanding those little commands? And again, that's, that's what we're gonna be talking about through this whole age range. There are another, there's another set of skills that I want you to pay attention to here as well. And these are three major cognitive skills object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving. And so let me just say before we move on, if a child is missing any one of these skills or if any one of these skills is pretty weak, maybe that skill is just barely emerging, you've only seen it one or two times, uh, I'm going to be talking with you and sharing strategies for how we can make that skill stronger and get that going. Because again, these are so important for early language development. So let's start by discussing that connection between cognitive skills and receptive language. Now this is the first section on your handout and I've already mentioned that the link for that handout is below if you're watching on YouTube and feel like you want to follow along. You can go get that handout and then come back. So this is the first section on your handout and one of the things that I really want to uh, make sure that you understand is that when children are under three years old, we really cannot separate cognitive skills from their receptive language skills. So we already talked about what receptive language is. That means what a child understands, the language that he comprehends from the words that he hears. So now let's talk about what cognitive skills are. Cognitive skills are, uh, parents think about this kind of as IQ or how smart a child is, but how we define it as therapists is that process that how a child learns, how he thinks, how he remembers, how he plans, all of those kind of mental activities and so again we may have thought about this before is nonverbal IQ and we can see some separation here when we think about nonverbal IQ versus verbal IQ for a child in this developmental range could because you can look at things that are definitely non-language based like uh, how do I get this toy when it's out of my reach or if I want the cookies that mom has up on the counter here What can I do to get those cookies? How can I get that? That would be an example. Of nonverbal IQ, but lots of our skills, particularly the things that we look at on developmental assessments that are under the cognitive section, really are receptive language skills. Things like identifying some body parts, you know, that we that we counted as a receptive language skill when we were just reviewing that, or uh, looking at the correct person or picture when named, or following simple directions. Those are three skills that are routinely listed on any kind of Uh, cognitive section of a developmental assessment. So there's a huge overlap between receptive language skills and cognitive skills. And so why do I want to talk to you about this? Well, when we know that a child has a medical condition or a medical diagnosis, that, that we know that developmental delays, meaning difficulty in learning skills as quickly as we want them to acquire them, that that problem will be there. Lots of times parents know that. However, they don't link it to late talking. And so so we have to really make that connection for parents. And so I'm going to go out of my way in this show (laughs) to talk about how receptive language and cognitive skills are connected and how we know that when a child has a a medical diagnosis like Down syndrome or any, any other kind of neurological event that's happened and we think that that could affect their cognition or there are going to be changes in their brain and in their body because they've had that neurological assault. We're going to be talking about that today because, again, I want to be sure that you understand exactly how these cognitive skills are connected to language development because we want to teach that to parents, too. So let's take a look and just dive right in with these three major cognitive milestones and uh, see what we can do to get those going. Now, let me give you one more important piece of information about this series before we get started. We are not going to be using or let me just say it like this, we are going to be using real traditional time-tested age ranges for when we list these milestones. We are not going to be using any newer screening milestone numbers that may be horribly flawed. Maybe some of those that might have come out in early 2022. (laughs) And from a language perspective, those expectations are way low. And the biggest problem out of there is saying something erroneous, like there's not a problem with a child's language development if he or she has three words by 30 months. And that was actually listed. And as an SLP, I hope you you were aghast, just like the rest of us were in February of 2022 when those guidelines were those new screening guidelines were came out as the, the gold standard for pediatricians and other developmental professionals, and I'll just tell you that is those standards are very, very going to be very harmful for children because we'll miss kids who should have been referred much, much earlier, and actually, I think the intent of those guidelines was to, uh, to not miss children, but then maybe not to have as many false positives, but at the same time, I think they've pulled so far back the other way that it, that we're definitely going to miss children. And so we're going to be looking at uh, the traditional milestone age ranges that we've used them for as long as I've practiced, which has been nearly 30 years. So again, time tested. And I pulled these milestones together when I wrote uh, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. And so lots of the information that uh, we'll be talking about today is directly from here. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about this resource for you that's particularly important if you are a speech-language pathologist or another therapist who works in an early intervention program and you are routinely assessing and treating a child's communication skills. It's also a great resource if you're a parent of a child with a language delay or disorder because we walk through these milestones just like we're going to do here today. And actually the book has a lot more information than I could share uh, here in a one-hour podcast. But let's talk about the the milestones. I, I used both normed and criterion reference tests to pull these together. So we've got uh, where we're uh, tests, where we're looking at how one child compares to lots of other children, and how one child compares to again a set of standards. So I've kind of combined these things, and uh, so the Rosette Infant Toddler Rosetti Rosetti Infant Toddler Language Scale, the Carolina, which is a, a criterion referenced five developmental domain tests that uh, we used a lot when I worked in Kentucky State Intervention Program, the Help, which was used a lot when I worked in. Uh, Indiana's Early Intervention Program, which, again, is a uh, criterion-referenced five-area developmental uh, uh, criterion-referenced test that we use as an assessment there. The PLS-4, which is standardized, and now we're on the PLS-5. Uh, That's not a test I routinely give anymore, but that was the standardized test that I looked at, as well as the Bailey scales of development. And so those were the tests that I used to pull this together. I also checked some other popular references, like the "What to Expect" uh, your first year, your baby's first year, and the, through the toddler years. To again make sure that there was pretty good consensus uh, for when lots of different experts or when uh, researchers researched these milestones and what they found. So again, to to give us a broad look, not just looking at one particular testing, but to kind of look at what every assessment sort of would say and then take the commonalities there so you can uh, rest assured that these uh, milestones are evidence-based and so again like I talked about at the beginning we know when a child already has an identified speech language issue say he's 24 months or two and a half at 30 months and we know that he's not talking uh, we know they're not going to meet these age ranges but these are the still the same skills that we're going to be looking at and making sure that we have um, up. So if a child has some weaknesses in these areas, we're going to make sure that we address those in therapy. And again, that's why a child has a delay because he hasn't met all the little bitty things, the prerequisite things that that go into achieving skills at those higher levels. And we can also think about milestones as a foundation that these 12 month milestones occur because the child met the nine month milestones and the six month milestones and the three month milestones. And so again, this is a continuous. And it's all uh, you're not going to meet the 24 month skills until you've met the 12 month skills. And sometimes as therapists, we don't want to share this developmental age range with a parent because it hurts their feelings or they they get so distressed about it. And so we kind of hold that back. And so if you have that kind of temperament and that's something you're afraid of, you should still be talking with parents about this is the set of skills, no matter You know, even if you kind of take that age age range off, this is this little first rung of skills that we want children to uh, be able to achieve. So now let's move forward talking about those three major cognitive milestones. Object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving. Now, before we define each one of these and talk about how to how to, to assess it and then how to work on it if a child is not using those uh, processes as he plays, let's talk about the connection again between cognitive skills, these three cognitive skills, and language. And so I'm going to share as we go through with each one because each one has a particular component of language development that I want to make sure that you understand as a a pediatric speech language pathologist or another kind of therapist so that you can use that information and then explain it to parents. And let me say one other thing. Sometimes we as uh, SLPs don't work on these cognitive skills like we should because we leave them to the educator person who may also be working on a child's team or we think this is not connected to language development or I'm just working on play skills here. No, 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 no. Play is the best way that we can measure cognition. And when a child's play skills are not moving along, we can anticipate that there could be a language problem because the cognitive uh, pieces aren't there. He's missing some things. Otherwise, and again, it could be a motor issue. It could could be something outside of that, but we know how closely cogn- uh, cognitive skills are tied to language development. And so we always want to make sure that we're connecting those and so let's just and and let me say here if when a child hasn't achieved object permanence cause and effect and simple problem solving from a developmental perspective he's not ready to learn language yet particularly how to talk and so let's move through this and talk about the cognitive skill just for the sake of cognition and how it looks in everyday life and play and then we'll connect it to the language skill so object permanence We're saying here by 12 months, we want a child to have object permanence, but actually most babies achieve object permanence earlier, around eight months, in that even seven to eight month period. So what is object permanence? Object permanence is understanding that an object or a person exists even if you can't see them. So it tells us that a baby has achieved the ability to form a mental representation of that object or person. Why is that important? Because that means that the child is moving from a concrete, from becoming a concrete thinker only. Like I have to see it to know it exists. I have to hear it to know it exists. To more abstract. He's holding that there in his mind. And he's symbolic. And that's important because that's what words are. Words are symbols. Language, just because, you know, we call this a Yeti because we've learned that that's the name brand. That the people who make this cool kind of cup that's what they call it. So that's our label. This isn't this isn't a Yeti in and of itself. It's symbolic. That's just our referent for it or our label for it. And so until kids learn, again, from that concrete perspective to hold that picture there in their mind just because they can't sense it with their little eyes or with their ears or with their hands, that's still there. And again, until the kid does that, he's not really ready to learn even what words mean or to use those labels. So how do we assess object permanence? You hide something from a child and see if he still tries to get it. And so, uh, again, that's kind of therapy 101 for therapists. I know you know how to do that. But for parents, when you're explaining that, You have to really, again, walk them through that. And so with object permanence, uh, it's just, again, a big hallmark of cognition. It's a big flag there. Yes, things are moving along for me. Yes, I understand it. Yes, I kind of think about it as I'm really ready to learn language. And so uh, that's certainly something that we can do So, what uh, that we need to address and work on. So uh, what are some great therapy activities for object permanence? Well, the most effective way to do that is simply by hiding, again, what the child is interested in and seeing if he tries to find it. When we have to teach it, we may have to back way up. And again, lots of times uh, we have to start back at this uh, level with our little guys who have uh, s- significant developmental differences so that we know that there's like our, our little guys who come to us with a medical diagnosis already or even with a developmental difference that we might associate intellectual disabilities being a part of Now, not all kids on the autism spectrum have intellectual disabilities about half have normal cognition but about a third don't and so sometimes with our little guys that we know who will go on to get an autism diagnosis this is where we start to work with them, particularly if they don't have uh, great play skills. So object permanent. So how I start with that is just by hiding something in my hand, usually uh, a small, you know, something small enough to be hidden. So a snack, maybe a Teddy Graham or an M&M or a Skittle or a Smartie, something just really small in my hand, and I show it to them, then I cover it up and say, where'd it go? where'd it go? Where's that cookie? And so again, you want the child looking for it, but usually they kind of get it because everything is right here and they'll start to really grab at your hand. And so, you know, aha, object permanence, he's got it. He knows I've hidden it there. And then you move on to doing it. Uh, I've worked on it with children who again, have significant sensory uh, involvement as well. And so maybe they're not Uh, Seeing or hearing or whatever sensory impairment there is, or 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 again severe significant developmental difference here, you have to start back at that level. So even a toy that they're hiding or that they're playing with, let's say my timer here, that they're playing with a toy, I might hide that toy. Is they're holding it by putting a blanket over it or by in some way occluding it so that the child can't see it, and so. That makes it pretty obvious the kid can still feel it. So he gets the cue, oh, I can take this off, and this is still there. And then we work on and move the object away from him. Say, so put it on the floor and do the same thing, cover it up. And what I started to say about the sensory impairments before, you can use sensory properties of a toy to help a child figure this out. So you can hide a toy, a music toy that he can hear, or a light toy that he or she can see. So they can use. They can even use their sensory um their sensory skills to overcome some of this cognitive uh, concern here where they say where they can see it and they can hear it and then they say oh my goodness it's still there and so that's certainly how uh, we can start to work on that All right, so object permanence, why is it important? Because a child needs to be able to hold a mental representation of the object, know that it's still there, even if he can't see it or hear it or feel it or taste it. And so that's why that's important. Let's move on to the next skill, cause and effect. So what is cause and effect? That means that a child is going to use directed groping or even uh, beginnings of trial and error. And he figures out, when I do this this happens. And so, how is that important for language development? This is where a child really begins to demonstrate intentionality. This is this is what I want. This is what I want to happen. And when, again, they start to understand, if I do this, this will happen. If I yell, mama, she's going to come. Or even before that, if I cry. If I cry, that can produce someone to help me. And so, again, that purposeful intentional use of communicative Uh, actions or actions that are again parents start to interpret as communicative and that's reinforced and then a child begins to use that routinely to uh, convey messages to other people in his or her environment and so basically what we're saying with cause and effect children learn if I want the effect I better do the cause so what does that mean I have got to do something to get something and it's such an important experience for babies to learn now most of the time babies learn this in that first year through their play experiences and so many toys that are designed for babies and toddlers are designed to teach cause and effect so that's why we'll have lots of toys like pop and pals where you push the button or you twist the key or you put your finger in the hole and turn the dial they learn when I do that the lid pops up the box opens whatever happens in the toy they learn with a ball toy oh I stick the ball in the hole and then I can watch it go down but the cause there is that I put the ball in the hole and then I can watch it or I push the button on the toy and I hear the music and so again it's when I do something I get this and that's what we really really want kids to learn and again with our little friends with a uh, known developmental issues if they have motor problems uh, motor skill issues with how they're learning to use their little bodies so they don't use their hands in and play and, and aren't as coordinated in um, adapting their hand movement to what they want their outcome to be as they're playing with a toy. We know that there are going to be problems with that and we'll have to adapt and help a child. Um, again, we're thinking about helping and working on the motor skills so that we can see the cognitive development, so that we can get the language development. And so again, that's why it's so important. So let's talk about our best therapy activities for cause and effect. So I already mentioned pop and pal kind of toys, any kind of electronic toy. And as a speech language pathologist, you may be rolling your eyes right now and saying, why did she say use an electronic toy? I know she hates these as much as I do. Yes, but when we're helping children who are much older than this 12-month range and especially our like we said before our kids with known developmental issues because of a diagnosis we uh, certainly have to make it easier for them so using something like an electronic toy and let's face it they all have them you know when we go make home visits that might be the only kind of toy a parent uh, has provided for a child or grandparent or whatever And so we start with what they have. And so, again, an electronic toy is not the best choice for all children. Certainly not the best choice for a child who starts to use that toy in a self-stimulatory way. But they all kind of do it when they're in this developmental range because they're trying to master cause and effect. And so, again, don't shoot the messenger here, but cause uh, electronic toys may be really helpful for you to teach cause and effect for a child who's struggling. Uh, for kids who are more in the more typically developing range, Montessori toys are fantastic for this, and so they're the wooden toys, and I'll provide some links for this in the recommended toy list, which I'm going to do for every show in this series, as so you can take a look at those great toys. And again, very simple concepts with what happens when I do this, when I Uh, push this button, this happens, or when I take the ball and I drop it in the hole, or when I put the coin in the little slot here, this is what happens, and so a cause and effect is a super important cognitive milestone for language development. The next uh, milestone that we want to talk about here is simple problem solving. And this is where a child is moving a little bit beyond cause and effect to begin to do some trial and error. So meaning that if my first thing doesn't work that I try, I understand that I should try something else. And so a good example would be a child with a shape sorter and he tries to put the block in the round hole and it will not fit. Does he know? Move it over to uh, the square move it over try it in the triangle will it fit there no will he then move on to the square and so this ability to generate a new idea really lets you know that again cognition is moving along a child understands again i've got to do something to get something with that cause and effect and if the first thing doesn't work for me i'm going to uh, try something else and it teaches that persistence and again that that I'm going to keep working with this. I'm not just going to abandon this activity and leave it alone and avoid an escape. I'm going to keep on trying. So problem solving comes up a lot in the day of a toddler uh, or even in a baby when he or she uh, wants uh, the music toy. Uh, say that they have a mobile in their crib and they can't activate it and they, they finally learn, oh, I can kick it. I can scoot a little closer to my mobile here and kick that, that cute little thing my mom has in my crib and then I'm going to hear that music that I love. Uh, he you might see this when he has a bottle or a sippy cup and there's just a little bit left in the bottom does he understand it he can't just hold it right here and get it does he invert the cup or invert the bottle so that he can get that last little bit that he really wants and again we see it all the time in play and we talked about the shape sorter or a puzzle or anything does the child try after the first little thing that they've done when it doesn't work do they give up or do they try something else so let's talk about just really quickly walk through some of these therapy activities for simple problem solving. So, does a child work to get an item out of reach? Can a child overcome an obstacle to get a desired item? Uh, Can they start, are they starting to play with early toys that provide problems to solve? That would be like nesting cups and stacking blocks. Again, those graded uh, toys that we have that children start to learn about size. And this cup can fit in this one, but not in this one. This cup is, the big cup, it cannot fit inside the small cup but the small cup can fit inside the bigger cup and so they solve those little problems daily routines we talked about inverting the cup Uh, we talked a little bit a second ago i gave an example of a child who wants a cookie on the cabinet and he how is he going to get it does he understand that i can climb or does he understand that i can pull the stool over and try to get it or i can open the cabinet door and stand on the shelves (laughs) you know what does he do do we have evidence that he is moving along with again that persistence in that trial and error. And about uh, the next kind of thing would be, does a child use a tool? And this would be after the 12-month range. It actually comes in this next little, uh, the next section by about 15 months where a child does start to use tools. So to play the xylophone, oh, it sounds prettier when I hit it with my xylophone stick. Uh, When I have a hammer and ball toy, not only can I push the ball in the hole with my hand, but oh my goodness, I can use the hammer and boom, boom, boom. I I can accomplish that better with this tool or with this toy, can I pull the string and pull it across? So all those things lead to utensil use and lead to a child being able to, say, brush his hair and brush his teeth because he's learning to use tools to accomplish uh, what he, his little goal is there. And so super, super, very practical ways to work on problem solving. So, so to summarize here, let's talk about these three major cognitive skills. They so set the stage for language development, and, to, and we've already talked about those specific connections. And you can find those reasons written on your handout if you miss those. And again, we want children. Uh, mastering those concepts and we know that we need those things to come in before a child is developmentally ready to learn to use words and lots of times especially with object permanence even understand what words mean all right now we're ready to move on and take a look at the receptive language milestones that uh, a child achieves by the time they're 12 months old. all right so let's take a super quick look at each of these skills and remember i want to talk to you about Uh, why this overall skill is important to language development, and then my best strategies and the things that I found work best to teach these skills so that uh, as therapists you can teach these to parents and so they can work on these skills all the time. And we know that children get better when everyone is on the same team. So let's just start working on the same page. Let's just start working through these skills. So the first one is response to their own name. Now we have these, again, these skills here by 12 months. And let me just say these are generous age ranges, especially here with the cognitive skills that we talked about in the first part of this list. And so we know that some babies recognize their names as early as four to six months, right? And we know most babies can do it by the time they're seven to nine months old, meaning that mom calls their name, you know, Logan, and Logan looks eventually, or hopefully in the first time or two, but certainly after several times, and they start to recognize and link meaning with that. And so here, when we have this here by 12 months, this is, again not that not that we're looking at things that are way above or way outside where a a child would be but these are pretty generous so we want a child doing that by 12 months uh with with recognizing their names this is one of the big screening um indicators that we use for autism for toddlers so after a child child is 12 months old if he's not responding to his name we know that there's something going on it may not be autism it could be again Uh, something else. It could be another severe intellectual or something that's causing a pretty significant receptive language problem or cognitive issue. But autism is certainly something that, that we think about when a child does not learn to respond to his name. So how do we teach it? I've written a lot about how to teach a child to respond to his name, and we are going to quickly run through these steps. But this whole method is in the autism workbook or in my therapy manual. Let's talk about talking. If you have children as a therapist that you think, I am just not good this, you may need to get yourself some more help and some more uh, resources there to uh, give give you just some more more tools to use when you're working on this skill. So the first thing that you want to do is change how you say a child's name so that it stands out from the other words. So you could sing a child's name. You could change your volume. Lots of times we always think about getting louder and as parents, you know, we might try to do that with a child and, you know, just really really call their names, you know, Weston, 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 you know, over and over and over until they respond. So sometimes that changing the volume is... Uh, helpful with that you might even whisper and and just again make it stand out from uh, the other words and so initially when we're working on this with the child we always want to stand in front of them so that we're also working on uh, social skills like eye contact and again that really being connected and paying attention to the same things uh, over time we want to make the things that we're doing so let's say that if we're changing let, let's say that we've decided again that we're going to sing Layla to teach a little girl her name over time we're going to back that down so that we're not singing it all the time. So that's kind of our number one strategy. And then after that, anytime a child responds to her name, when we've done that, we don't just need to celebrate silently and move on. You have got to reinforce. So you've got to reward a child lavishly with whatever motivator they have chosen for themselves. Meaning that if they like hugs, you are going to hug them. If they're, you know, kind of a body-on-body kid, you're going to sweep them up and just really make a big deal and give them what their little system wants. If they're a kid, you know, who again is satisfied with a high five when they've uh, done something that you like, that's great too. If they're a kid that just loves it when you just gush all over them, oh, mommy's so proud of you. You did it. You did it. You're such a big girl. You know, whatever you do, whatever whatever you've established with your child there, your child has told you, not told you, but shown you that they respond best to, that's what we want to do. And so again, a, a physical contact that he or she enjoys, so do that, and, and hopefully that will start to really... Uh, increase the frequency with which your child responds to his or her name over time. You're going to, again, back that down and decrease your celebration so that they start to do it in more context. And when I'm working on this with the family, I aim for a quick five or six turns where we've practiced doing that. And then we move on to something else and do something else for a little while. And then we come back and practice it again for five or six quick little turns so that we're not practicing responding to your name for you know 20 minutes because that wears everybody out but just these quick little five or six turns do something else and then come back to that so that you are calling their name they're responding and you're giving them their quick reward when we're doing it in a really kind of therapy context or if there's no consistent response uh with the just the changing how we say uh, their names or giving them physical a physical reward with physical contact that they like we may have to do something more tangible and so again this this is where I kind of think about we go all ABA <laughs> with this is sort of what I say and I hope I'm not offending you if you're an ABA uh, professional watching this but this is where we really reward you know you respond to your name I'm going to give you a cookie or how I've done it in therapy is you know if a child is like something like sweet tea or a coke or a, ch- a chocolate milkshake something that they don't routinely get we've got to kind of up the ante so it makes it worth it to them to really respond and again we do that in the context of five or six little turns in a row. You know, we call the child's name, Brittany, and she responds, and then we give her that little drink, and then she goes back to what, you know, we wait until she diverts her attention to something else, and we say, Brittany, and she responds, and we say, yay, and, you know, give her that little milkshake. And again, over time, we're going to fade that because you don't want her, you know, to be three years old and still thinking that every time her mom says her name, she's going to get a drink of chocolate milkshake. But you get my point here. You've got to make it worth it for that child to do something that's been very, very difficult for them. And so that's kind of how we teach that, that responding to their names. All right, so let's move on to the second skill. responds with gesture to want up. And again, this is another one of those that comes in much sooner than 12 months, but 12 months is kind of what we're using as our Uh, age range here. So typically we see this with children who have a more normal uh, sequence of language development. It usually develops between six and nine months. And so whenever they hear their mom say, you want up, they start to understand that and they lean forward or lift their hands up. How do we teach that? We practice it over and over and over and over and over with kids with motor issues that they maybe have some strength issues or some coordination issues. We may be giving them some cues, you know, under to lift their arms as we put our hands under their armpits here to kind of help them uh, learn to lift their hands so they start to understand Oh, I've got to do part of this I've got to lean I've got to get my arms up we may for like we did back in uh, with teaching a child to respond to their own name for kids this is hard for they may need a bigger reward so we might have to do some tangible uh, things Uh, usually though here it's just physical contact so we throw them up in the air we give them a big hug we squeeze them we tickle them whatever they throw them on the couch whatever they like and then again we practice that and practice Practice that over and over so they start to anticipate that and get their little hands up so here we're looking for the response with their arms or leaning forward and again what why do we want that motor response is to let us know that cognitively they are linking meaning with that phrase all right let's move on to the next skill and I hope you're following along on your handout it's recognizes family member names. so this is when a child looks when, you're, when you ask him, where's mama? He knows to look at her. So the best way to teach this, and I work on this with so many little friends in therapy, and I call it the mama game. I did a YouTube video about it years ago. I need to redo it because it's gotten a little older. But um, the mama game, what do you do for that? You have a child seated, in a high chair or in his crib. Or if you you could hold him if he's a kid who doesn't kind of fight you and want to get away all the time. But you want to contain them so that they are, again, can't walk away and do something else on their own. And then you have mom hide really, really close so that the child, she can pop out and the child can still see her from, from where he or she is contained. And so then you as the therapist or the parent, whoever, you know, if dad's playing this, teaching uh, a child to call mom, You call, you say, you know, you've got the child there and and mama's has hidden. You say, where's mama? Where'd mama go? We better call her. Let's call her. And you make a big deal about labeling her as mom by calling her by, uh, you know, I put my hands up on my mouth. So it's very obvious. I'm going to talk and I, you know, you call and you say, mama, mama, mama and the mom needs to jump out with the biggest you know fanfare that she can muster there and say mama it's mama i'm mama and again the reason that we want her saying you know here not saying here i am or yay it's me we want her saying mama because we want to link that word and have that child really make that connection with that label so that when you start to say where's mama here she starts to really really look around for her and so this is a super super effective game really from the receptive language part and then you can also use it to in the expressive language part and so we'll talk about this uh game again and show 451 with how to teach a child to call mama and the biggest thing here is that children have to play it over and over and over. And a lot of times, if mom isn't animated enough to capture her child's attention, she's a little shyer. She doesn't understand that she's just got to get in there and play and play and play. You may have to model for mom how, you, how excited you want her to be so that uh, the child, again, really senses that and anticipates that too and gets excited that mom is so into this game. And so sometimes there's coaching not only for the child but for the parent. But it's a great game to teach a child how to recognize family members uh, don't just stick to teaching one family member name at a time. Sometimes families will do it where they take turns with different people hiding, and then I think, well, all the child's really learned then is somebody's going to pop out when I call their name, but or, or when somebody else is standing there calling their name. It doesn't really matter if it's mom or dad or Bubby or whoever. You don't really want that. You really want them linking that meaning. You can use the game to teach other family names, but I sort of try to stick to Mama until I know that the child has really learned that, and then we add those other people in there. All right, so let's move on to the next skill, and this is understands no. So babies with typically developing receptive language begin to understand no and respond to it about half the time by the time they're six to nine months old. Now, lots of times parents will say to me, he doesn't understand no because I've never told him no. And I get that, but at the same time, that's kind of abnormal in and of itself. Because when you have a child that's starting to crawl, or and, if, and I can understand if it's a child that has uh, motor issues and that you're a uh, big developmental difference that they're not really doing things. But otherwise, kids are starting to get into things and do things that you don't necessarily want them to have or do. And so no should start to come up. And so even when parents are saying, well, I don't ever tell her no, you know, start to really talk about that and, and, and really understand why that is. Sometimes it's that the parents aren't really, uh, that children aren't doing enough at home, that there aren't enough opportunities to explore. Sometimes it's that parents aren't connected enough to really know that they should start saying those kinds of things and, and really kind of having some behavioral limits and some behavioral expectations. And so talk with parents about that too. So I don't ever really set up situations in therapy to work on understanding, no, because they naturally come up, right? And so what do we do with that? Uh, We try to teach parents to make their tone of voice and their facial expressions match their verbal message. And so you can't tell a child, no, 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 you need to stop that right now. I mean, that's... We do it. I mean, as gushy Laura Mize does that a lot, but when we're really teaching them to understand no, uh, we really need to have a firmer tone of voice and a more serious facial expression. And again, we really need to caution parents to save no for important redirections, not just every little thing that comes up. Lots of times when no is overused in a home, children do start to kind of tune that out because it's all they ever hear, so I help parents make that distinction, too. All right, the next. Skill that we want to see by 12 months is a gesture here, and it's on the receptive language list. And why is that? Because again, we want to make sure that a child understands what this request is. And so, there's going to be so much overlap between not only the cognitive sections and the language sections of any developmental assessment, (coughs) pardon me, but also between the receptive language and the expressive language. We want a child, again, waving bye-bye is an expressive and a receptive skill and so the receptive part of this is that they understand when they hear bye-bye that somebody's about to leave and then they link that expressive gesture with it when they're waving bye-bye and so how do we teach bye-bye we practice like we said with all the other skills and so a child has to be able to see and hear and anticipate that something or someone is leaving and so we do lots of modeling with waving bye-bye lots of physical hands-on assistance you know parents should be taking a child's hand and helping him wave when he's not doing it what about if we see something super stimmy like we'll see and by that i mean a self-stimulatory behavior sometimes a parent will say well he waves bye-bye but he just does it right here and he doesn't always do it when somebody's leaving that's not waving bye bye (laughs) he might do that when someone is leaving because he likes that he sees your hand but he's gone into a self-stimulatory thing and again Young babies, typically developing babies, may do some, some versions, some independent, um, come up with their own little variations of things. But to get it to look like what we would typically expect, you know, you're going to want to do some uh, hand over hand so that you're seeing them wave. The way that I teach the bye-bye song is I sing a little song at the end of every session, or if I'm working on it really hard with a kid, even in the middle of a session, if we're, we're putting away a toy, or uh, I used to do it with my own children at night and when they didn't want to get out of the bathtub, uh, singing the bye-bye song really kind of is a transition activity too. So let me just teach it to you so you can use it because it's a great way to work on um, waving and saying bye-bye when it's not just that one shot. So uh, let's sing Henry because that's my grandbaby's name. So uh, the little bye-bye song would be, you know, bye-bye Henry, bye-bye Henry, bye-bye Henry, it's time to say bye-bye. And so again, how many times did we say bye-bye in there? How many times did we practice bye-bye? We had lots of opportunities to practice that. And lots of times at the end of a session... Uh, You sing it more than one time. So again, your efforts will be multiplied and it's really kind of uh, just a more providing some more structure and more of a verbal routine for parents to practice. So I love that little song for teaching bye bye. All right. The next receptive language skill that we want to look at is gives an object on request with and without cues. And so we already talked about this in the explanation. I went a little long on that, but this means that we teach a child when we say, give it to me with your outstretched hand that he's going to do it and so the simplest way to work on this is when you've asked for something first of all don't if you're working on it with a younger baby great you can use almost anything but if we're working on it with a language a disordered two or three year old who is probably on the autism spectrum and they also have obsessions and fascinations you're not going to want to do it with their most prized treasured object because they will hardly ever want to give that to you without a fight and so you pick something that's more neutral and you start working on it there and you say give it to me and you have them put it in your hand if they don't give it to you take your free hand reach over and take the object that's still in their hand so put your hand completely. Completely around their little hand so that you are taking their hand and having them release the object into your hand now for kids who are Hoarders, and we say that with affection. Uh, you sometimes you can't get, you can't keep the object very long. You've got to give it right back. But then just keep on practicing with those little routines. And sometimes something when you are moving on to a new activity, uh, when again a child who has a lot of difficulty with this, you know, you may do it as you move on to the next activity. So you know, we'll give give me the toothbrush so you can get in the bathtub or whatever you have to do to get for them not to want to hang on to that object for dear life. Over time, you're going to want to fade your cues. Like we talked about, which means what? Stop holding your hand out and just say, give it to me or give me that. And you want them to uh, give the object. And so uh, model that with other people and be sure that you're fading your cues over time. And that's one of the first little commands that children should be following. So that's certainly something we work on in speech therapy with a child who is not understanding uh, language like here, he should pretty early. It's usually a, a pretty early goal. The next goal is real fun. Like we've already talked about, kisses on request. Such a super functional, super command for our little friends to learn how to follow. How I work on this is I have a child on the floor with me. And yes, I still kiss little clients and that grosses a lot of therapists out and if I find that a mom or a dad's turned off by that you know I'm certainly not going to do it but uh, hold the toddler on your lap and say oh you give me a kiss oh you know can you give me some kisses whatever little word you want to use there and usually if and we'll talk about this when we're teaching any kind of word if we put the word that we're teaching the last word that they hear it's more salient it sticks out more they remember it better you might even with some of these little commands you know go to you know just kiss you know just that little single word command and so then uh you know you've got the child on your lap or real close to you and you lean to give a kiss and lots of times children are going to start to do the lean and and pretty quickly that's kind of how they show you that they've understood that question you know a lot of times it's that little lean with an open mouth you're going to get that little open mouth kiss but that's precious and certainly a, f- a first little command, first little request that lots of families love to work on. And it is on quite a few developmental tests because it's one of the first little requests that children and or babies learn how to complete. All right, the next uh, uh, skill here is performs routine activities during daily routines when asked. So this is what we talked about in the introduction. When children really learn to associate the request that you're making with the everyday routine that we're doing. So we talked about with getting dressed. You're trying to put a, sh- a shoe on your your toddler's little fat foot. So how do you do it? You know, you're saying, "Put your foot in. Help, Mama. Come on, get your foot in there." And so we're assessing how is a child understanding and how is he participating in the little routines that you do every single day with him. When you're saying, are you hungry? Let's go get something to eat. Is he getting up and moving toward the kitchen? When you say, it's bath time. Let's go take a bath. Does he stop what he's doing? Because he understands that and start to walk toward the bathroom. And so, Lots of times, let me tell you what we see as therapists, we will see parents of children who, again, this is usually children who have an established diagnosis, a parent doesn't really start to expect these things from them. So they don't establish these little routines. Where, And, and that's not always the case. You, know, you can't always blame this on parents that parents aren't doing it. But some of the time, it's just that the expectation is not there. So we talk to parents about that. And when we're reviewing this milestone and we say, you know, we want them participating with you. So what we want you to do is give simple commands. You need to say the same words in the same way at the same time every day. And what does that do? It helps a child with a receptive language issue begin to link meaning with the words that he's hearing. And essentially, we're helping a child learn to do his part throughout this. And so certainly that's something that we want to do with all children, but particularly with children who are having difficulty understanding language. We want to see a response. We want to teach them to do their part so that, again, we're able to measure not just what they, we think they understand, but what we know they understand. And these are the first kinds of things. Again, all the skills on this list, these are the first kinds of requests that babies start to complete, first little directions that they follow, So, even if you are working with a child who is two and a half, three, three and a half, if they're not talking and if they are not routinely doing the other things, listed here at this developmental level, you know, starting to identify some body parts, starting to uh, follow, you know, uh, recognize family member names and things. We know these are all of these can be your first goals. All of these really understanding the language that occurs in all of these everyday routines in their homes, that's where we want to start with that. All right, the next uh, skill is a bump up even from that. We've talked about how we want them just to perform these relationships related activities related commands during familiar activities this one bumps it up a little bit more and this does start to come in right at the 12 month level understands names for familiar objects and people and so children generally recognize the family member names first usually mama dada or again uh, their brother or sister names if they see their you know their uh, caregiver every day whether it's whoever happens to take care of them their babysitter's name their teacher's name at school those kinds of things are going to come next and so and i mentioned things like pets or familiar objects are here too so This is where we really, really start to see a child really demonstrate that he is Understanding the words that he's hearing and he's starting to link those meanings. And so what can we do with children who aren't doing this yet? You have got to label and point to everything. You've got to use single words all the time. And again, try to pull those words as I think I heard this from Nancy Kaufman out of the blah, blah so that you're not going to say something like, do you want mommy to get you some milk right now? You look real thirsty. Would you like some milk? I think you might want some milk. I think I better just go in the kitchen and pour that in the cup for you. What is your target word there? It's milk, but you have complicated it with all those other words. And so, lots of times, we have to teach parents to really reduce the complexity, especially not only when a child is learning to talk so that they can imitate the word. But when they're learning to understand the word and so talk with parents about placement of the word too. even if you're going to still continue to talk in phrases and sentences, which we do. That's how that's how we communicate. We want to put the word that the child needs to understand at the end so we get that keyword there so that that's the last word that they hear. We also want to do frequent little receptive language checks so that we're giving little uh, uh, not so much commands yet. That really comes more... And you know we've we've covered some of those today with gives kisses or the gives objects on a request or waves bye bye, but right now we're really just talking about establishing a great core vo- receptive vocabulary of nouns. So meaning that he understands all the familiar uh, starting the labels in his object uh, the labels of objects in his environment. So he understands words like baba or cup or. Uh, shoes or diaper or again mom and dad or you know uh, mama dad dad whatever versions of the word that a parent is using there and so sometimes why aren't kids doing this again it's a receptive language problem but sometimes we see other issues come into play if they're going to be diagnosed with autism we know that that's a possibility for them it's joint attention and that means that they are not able to share the experience with you so you may be the best labeler in the world and you may be doing talking great getting all your using lots of single words and putting them at the end of your phrases and you're like i said you're pointing and you're showing but that child shows no evidence that he or she is is joining you in that experience and so that that piece is called joint attention we have to help that child learn how to attend to that and respond so that when you are pointing he looks at what you're pointing at and and that might be a lot of the reason for our little friends who are on the autism spectrum who d- aren't acquiring receptive language that joint attention is the reason that their receptive language isn't moving along and so we have to uh, again do lots of really uncovering why what what is the problem here What is the real reason this child is not doing this? What is contributing to this? And really, really focus on that piece and help a child learn that. So if you you have a child, and again, this goes beyond the presentation for today, but if you figure out, oh, it's joint attention, then that's what you work on. You work on that skill and then... Uh, The receptive language starts to move along. Alright, the next skill is participates in uh, social games with gestures. And I talked about this in the introduction too. So in a game like patty cake does a child start to clap her hands do you play have you played patty cake with her so often and helped her often enough that she understands and and if her motor skills are good enough can she bring her hands to midline and slap them together there to participate in that little routine and again what does it mean there it means that she understands those words she is joining you in that game and she knows that you're clapping and she wants to do that too so it's getting those little games going so what do you do you pick a couple of those routines and you teach them and how do you teach them you play them over and over and over and over because repetition is so important it's how all of us learn anything we practice enough so that it becomes easier for us and so you have to teach parents some games to play now lots of times parents have tried with language delayed kids that are say say they're two and you're seeing them in early intervention sometimes the parent will say well that's a baby game i played that with her way back. And then, uh, and then you'll say, well, did she participate? And sometimes the answer, you know, they have to think about it, but they think, well, no, she never did. And that's why the parents stopped. Or again, they might've just kind of put it away and said, well, she's beyond that now. I'm not going to, that's a baby routine. We're, we're not going to do that. But this is where you start. You start really teaching them some of these little games. Now, if a parent is, you know, thinking that their two-year-old is way too mature for peekaboo, you know, and you think, well, I need to get some older games, you can certainly do it with some older games. You can do it where Ride a Little Horsey, you know, where their part is. To participate in that social game, they would have to hold your hands and anticipate, you know, that they're going to fall through. Or a game like Ring Around the Roses. They their part in that game would be holding hands and walking around in a circle as you sing ring around the rosies pocket full of posies ashes ashes and then their part is what to all fall down and so you can do these with some older games too but my point here is don't get so wrapped up in that because i've worked with significantly affected three and four-year-olds who do still love these games because this is where they're functioning cognitively and so don't let that whole kind of oh this is too much of a baby game get you off you know explain that difference to parents say this is where she is I, all I'm all I'm trying to teach her here is to participate in this game we can get some older games you know as we move along but let's try this right now most of the time they're going to be great with that all right I just did a whole show on using uh, games with children it's podcast number 448 so if you need some more ideas for those kinds of social games uh, go back and watch that podcast I'll try to link that here below and it's actually on your handout I believe that I've linked that to. But when we teach these little games, we do repetition. We model the hand motions over and over and over. We provide hand-over-hand assistance to help the child perform uh, the game. So let's say a game like peek a You know, we won't just leave, you know, if we're doing peek a I don't play it either with the kids covering their own eyes because that's too hard for a lot of our friends. I'll use a, a little receiving blanket or a dish towel or, an, you know, an afghan off the couch <laughs> to start to play it with a little friend if I'm seeing them at home. And again, you're not going to, you're not going to leave them covered forever. You take the blanket off their head. You know, you help them learn to take their little hands and get their own head uncovered. And again, that hand-over-hand assistance piece is something that uh, lots of kids are going to need for a while before they begin to participate uh, on their own. So a great milestone to work on. I love social games because it really, it helps us include two things that all of us as speech-language pathologists want to target. That's the social interaction piece, which is why any of us learn to communicate in the first place it's so that I can uh, tell you what I need you to know and so that I can listen and understand what you need me to know and so again starting with these little games is a great starting point for therapy so that social engagement piece and then the communication piece and I just told you about that I'm going to say it or I'm going to tell you what I need you to know and then I'm going to listen and be the person who receives that message and then respond accordingly. And so all of these things really do happen in the context of these little games and everyday routines uh, like we're talking about now. All right, so let's move on to the next milestone, which is we're starting to get hard, right? This one is identifying a few body parts. So on lots of developmental tests, we'll see points to two different body parts by 12 months. Now, don't get freaked out if a child, again, isn't doing this at 24 months or two and a half or three. Just don't worry about the age ranges here. Just teach a child how to do it. Now, when I teach body parts, lots of parents and therapists mess up because we want to teach everything right here on our face, you know, eyes, nose, mouth, that's too close. Kids are going to miss that because there's not much margin for error here right in this little space. But if we teach things like hair, and belly and toes first. They're going to be spread out. And again, it's going to be easier for us to measure uh, how how well the child is doing with understanding that. If they're constantly, if we're saying, where's your belly and they're up here, we're gonna know, oh gosh, he has no idea of what I'm talking about. He just understands that I want him to find something. He hasn't really linked. That belly is down here in the middle of his body. And so uh, that that's different when we're doing a lot of facial body parts because if we're doing eyes, nose, and mouth and they're all right here, just too close and we can't even assess it. So keep those body parts uh, further away. I have some song that I sing that I teach to parents and they're two little tunes you know from old nursery rhymes and old songs so the first one I do is from the uh, to the tune of here we go around the mulberry bush so it's this is the way I touch my hair touch my hair touch my hair this is the way I touch my hair early in the morning so that's a version you can do other you know touch my um, touch my knees touch my eyes you know when you're back up here and ready to work on those facial body parts the next one is to the tune of mary had a little lamb so you sing this one uh, brandon has some little toes little toes little toes you know and you're touching his toes while you're doing it brandon has some little toes they're oh so fun too and put a verb in there, tap, touch, squeeze, whatever you wanna do, but that's a cute one, and again, you could do it with several body parts at a time, but when our kids have significant receptive language issues, I stick to kinda teach them one body part until they've mastered that, and then we add another one, and then we differentiate between those two, but don't work on too many targets at too many times, or at one time, with the child with receptive language issues, because again, uh, we've got to make it easier for that child. It's harder. We know it's harder because he's not understanding more words. So we have to simplify it and reduce that complexity so that he has a chance to learn that. Uh, The last one is to the tune of Where is Thumpkin? So, you know, where's your belly? Where's your belly? Here it is. Here it is. Touch it with your fingers. Touch it with your fingers. Just like this. Just like this. I don't know if you can see me touching my belly down here with my fingers, but you can do it with your ear, with anything. And again, I like the songs that say tap it and touch it because we're training the, and teaching their response. You can do, you know, tickle with your fingers, tickle with your fingers, just like this. But when a child, when somebody's asking a child to identify body parts, they may not get the tickling thing, so the tapping of their touching is a nice way to teach it. All right, so we just went through that entire list for the receptive language milestones by 12 months. Now, you may be wondering, like we talked about before, what about the nine-month skills? What about the six-month skills? What about the zero to three-month skills? In that, we, we already talked about milestones really are foundational. So, one layer, one age range is usually contingent upon a child achieving the skills at the earlier age range. They're all built on each other. And so, when we have a child that hasn't mastered these 12 month skills, there may be some situations that you think, I better back it down. So, get yourself a copy of a developmental assessment and you can again work where a child is so that you are backing up and backing up and backing up to meet a child for they are currently functioning. One other thing that I wanted to mention about these milestones is that we can use these as screeners. So if there's a child over 12 months who's not talking and we pull out the 12-month receptive milestone list and he's not doing those either, you know, we know that that certainly is a child that that's not just a late talker and we're going to need to take a closer look at him with a full assessment there. All right, does it always mean that something is wrong if a child isn't meeting these milestones on time? And again, this is where I think that it gets us in a lot of trouble when we start to think about the milestones if we think okay we're using the average age of when a child has attained a milestone and so when we look at the bell curve we know that the average age is right there at that 50th percentile so what does that mean that means half the kids will have achieved it but what does it mean for the other half they haven't done it either is there necessarily anything wrong no, there is nothing wrong with a slower pace of development. And again, we know that from the bell curve. Not all of us are over there at the Einstein end of the curve with uh, just zany, brainy uh, intellectual skills. It is fine to have a child with a slower pace of development. And we know that. We know then academics may be slower. Uh, we know that the, it's you know it's just going to be harder for him to learn those things. If we see that it's a kid has met a 5 year old skill he might not do it till he's Five years and three months old or six months old, that's okay. But what we don't want to do is miss kids with a typical development. And those are the kids that, again, aren't anywhere close to these milestones or they're all over the place or they are doing things that they're missing, a lot of skills at the younger age ranges, but they might do something at a a higher age range and they've got a lot of splinter skills in there. So the milestones really do help us determine uh how a child is functioning there and again does it mean that there's something necessarily wrong if a child isn't hitting this no but we know that there's a chance and we know that that child is going to need some additional support. And so we don't need to wait until a child is down in that bottom one or two percent before we decide there's a problem. And again, those, that set of milestones that I mentioned earlier that came out earlier, February 2022, that a national organization promoted. Those kinds of things are really scary for those of us who work in uh in pediatrics and in childhood development because we don't want to wait. We're The purpose of screening is to be able to either refer children for surveillance, meaning that we are going to monitor them and we're going to keep an eye on them and make sure that they're still keeping pace. And then if they're getting too far behind, we start to provide that assistance or that we jump in from the beginning and we get that early intervention going. We know about neuroplasticity, right? We know that when we get the right interventions going early enough, we actually change a child's brain. We actually change the whole little outcome for their life. And so again, that's why we want to use these screeners, not to overreact, not to get all bent out of shape. If a child, you know, if he's supposed to get something at 12 months, but he doesn't get it till 15 months, who cares, right? We know that kid has that slower pace of development, but we're really looking for the kids who were way off that, who have completely atypical development. Those are the kids that um, that we're really looking for. And actually, let me say one more thing. I I support working with kids who do have those really mild delays. And if you're in the position that you don't have to determine eligibility requirements before you work with a child, say you're in private practice, and a parent brings a child who's just mildly delayed to you, those are the kids that I think we can actually make the most difference with because we can bump them up and give them just enough jump start and just enough boost to really get them in that solidly... Uh, where they should be for their age range. So there's something to be said for that too. All right, that's it for today. My best resource for teaching all the skills that we're going to talk about in this 14-part series is Teach Me to Talk the Therapy Manual. Uh, Today, I just shared just a little blip for each of the milestones what you could do uh, to work on that but there are tons more uh, ideas in this manual and if you are a pediatric speech language pathologist or a developmental specialist or an educator who works with children in early intervention this is a fantastic resource for you because it will it'll give you those those tricks and those techniques and strategies that really really work to teach all these milestones. All right, that's all for today. The next show 451, we're going to be taking the same Age range at by 12 months and looking at the expressive language skills that we'll also be want to seeing for uh, this age range I already said there's a nice overlap and isn't it wonderful that we have overlaps because what does that mean it means that these it's consistency it shows us that all these skills really do belong at these ages and that they're all coming in at the same time I also want to leave you with this one note that receptive language comes before expressive language because kids always understand 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 words before they begin to say words and use words meaningfully so if you are a therapist or a mom and you're thinking i'm not going to listen to these receptive language shows because this is i'm just working on talking we've just got the speech piece going here no, 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 no. <laughs> it's all connected and you've got to have that receptive language piece to, to, as your cause for what you want your expressive language outcomes to be. So I hope that I've convinced you that you need the receptive shows too. All right, that's really it for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me To Talk's podcast. <laughs>